The Life and Writings of James Parnell by Henry Calloway Edited by Jason Henderson Part 1 James Parnell was born at Retford in Nottinghamshire in 1637. It is not easy to ascertain the precise station of life in which he moved. It is stated in the court order by which he was committed to Colchester Castle that he was a laborer. He says of himself that he was engaged in his outward calling when he was not occupied in the service of truth, and that he claimed no property in the earth. It is hence probable that his circumstances were humble. Our historian, William Sewell, informs us that he was trained up in the schools of literature, a statement probably derived from a remark of James Parnell that he was sent unto schools of human learning to learn human wisdom, for which end the schools are profitable. His writings, however, seem to indicate that, while he had received an education beyond the medium of that day, it was but limited, and it certainly was not extended beyond his fourteenth year. Henry Tuke, with good reason, supposes he might have received instruction at the grammar school at Retford, and it is highly probable that the following remark of James Parnell had reference to the classical authors. He says, Many of the books which are read in the schools of human learning do much for the corrupting of youth and nourishing the wild, profane nature which then ruled in me. He thus commences a short account, which he wrote while in Colchester Castle, of his religious experience, saying, First I shall give the reader a declaration of the work of God in my soul, and the conversion of my heart from darkness unto his marvelous light, and from the power of Satan unto God, and from the path of death into the path of life, where I now walk in the light of my God, with the ransomed of the Lord, who are traveling towards the holy city, and also the cause of my coming forth into the world to declare the truth, for which I now suffer bonds by the persecuting generation. He says that he was once a child of wrath, as all are by nature, and followed the vain courses and ways of the world. His wicked natural propensities were nourished by the education he received, so that, while at school, and after leaving it, the same depravity of heart remained, and he grew in sin and continued to follow the sinful vanities of the world. He was trained up in the customary worship of the nation, and attended the service on first days, but as his religious exercises were not associated with any real conversion of heart, and were undertaken in his own carnal will, he afterwards regarded them as mere idolatry. But, even at this season, while estranged in his heart from God, and following the gratifications of the carnal mind, he was, from time to time, sensible of the visitations of heavenly light, not indeed then known to him to be of heavenly origin, but at first shining in darkness, uncomprehended, as to from where it came or to where it was going. This would spring up in his heart when he was alone, and reprove him in secret for his transgressions, by which he was often led into serious self-examination and consideration of his ways, and life and death were at times set before his eyes in such a manner as to cause him to determine to forsake sin. But, being ignorant that these reproofs of instruction were the strivings of the Spirit of Truth with him, and not yet knowing that all strength and sufficiency to overcome sin could be derived from God alone, these determinations were made in his own will, and were kept only till his resolutions were tested by some fresh temptation, when the careless mind again wandered, and led him still to delight his heart in the vanity which the eye saw and which the ear heard. But the pleasure derived from such vanities passed away with the using, and he was left to judgments renewed for his transgression. For the spirit of truth still followed him, convinced him of sin, and called him to repentance and amendment of life. The more he inclined his mind, and drew near to God in these inward manifestations, he found that God drew nearer unto him, so that he had at length thankfully to confess that he was found of him when he sought not. For he felt that it was the free, unmerited, and unsought goodness of the Lord towards him, the chief of sinners, 
that called him to repentance, and in time wrought also a reformation of heart, thus working in him both to will and to do, and plucking him as a brand from the burning, to make him an instrument of honor in his house. James Parnell states that he was, according to his age, as perfect in sin as any in the town where he lived, and that he exceeded many in the wickedness of his life. In this state he was loved by the worldly-minded around him, as being one of themselves. But when the Lord was pleased to make known his power in him, and to turn his heart towards him, truly to seek him, the change which was effected by divine grace caused him to become a wonder to them, and they hated him and turned from him in his converted state as much as they had sought him while he was leading an ungodly life. Even his own relatives, being in that carnal mind which understands not the things of the Spirit, endeavored to draw him away from faithfulness to God and to destroy the work which he had begun in his heart. And when they could not prevail on him to conform to the world in its invented fashions, customs, traditions, its ways, fellowship, and worship, for his eye, having been opened by the power of God, he perceived the idolatry of such things and could no longer practice them. They became his greatest enemies and excited persecution against him so that he became a mockery in the streets and was accounted unworthy to live among them and some even said it would be doing God's service to kill him. But, says this dedicated youth, he that called me out from among them unto himself that I might no longer follow the vain courses of the world, nor set my delight in things below, but that I might serve him in newness of life, that in me his workmanship might appear to the confounding of the heathen who knew him not. He, by his power, kept me, and gave me strength to bear his cross and despise the shame, so that neither fair words nor foul words could cause me to deny what God by His grace had wrought in my heart. And feeling the preciousness of being brought into spiritual relationship with His Heavenly Father, feeling the incomparable value of being a son of God, and if a son, then an heir, an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ, He was made willing and enabled to come out from among His kindred and acquaintances and to become a stranger to them who loved not the truth. The real conversion of his soul, evidenced by a walk which became the high vocation with which he was called, had the effect of clearly manifesting the worldly character of the priests whose ministry he had been accustomed to attend. While he lived in the vain conduct of the world, they took no notice of him, either to reprove or to instruct him, for they were as deep in the world's spirit as others. Indeed, they upheld by their lives and conduct the very evil which they condemned in their sermons, and thus disqualified themselves for laboring for the conversion of the individual members of the flock. They condemned sin in general, but feared to speak against it in particular cases, lest they should bring a reflection on their own lives. But as soon as James Parnell manifested a closer walk with God, that he was truly and in earnest on God's side, and as soon as his fruits made manifest that he had been grafted into the true vine and livingly partook of its living sap, then they became his enemies and said he was deluded. When James Parnell found that the priests were carnal and, together with the people who followed them, had only the outward form while they denied the life and power of true religion, he separated from them and sought a people with whom he might have unity. George Fox left his relations and was engaged in his mission in a private way as early as 1643, but it was not until 1648 that he commenced his ministry in an extensively public manner, at which time, he says, various meetings of friends and several places were gathered together to God's teachings by his light, spirit, and power. The great work which has been mentioned as progressively going on in James Parnell's mind and the decisive step of separating himself from the national mode of worship took place before he was 15 years of age, that is, before 1652, by which time friends must have been known as a people. 
There were, however, no friends in the place where James Parnell lived, and up to this time he had had no interaction with any of those with whom he afterwards united himself, as to a people who were gathered to worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Indeed, it is clear from his own writings that the work was the work of God alone, by his spirit in his heart, and he forms one among the many instances with which the early history of our society abounds, of those who, without communication with others, were led by the same spirit to adopt some of the most important principles of truth. It seems probable that it was in the year 1651, when he was about fourteen years of age, that he separated from carnal professors and sought a people with whom he might become united in religious fellowship. Footnote. The word professor is used to refer to anyone who professed a faith in Christ. Here the word has nothing to do with teachers or scholars. Returning to text. He says, There was a people with whom I found union a few miles from the town where I lived, whom the Lord was gathering out of the dark world to sit down together and wait upon his name. With these he bore the reproach of Christ and was willing for his sake to be numbered among those who were regarded as the off-scouring of the earth. But in their afflictions and persecutions for the Savior's sake, they rejoiced in remembering that it was written that they who should live godly in Christ Jesus should suffer persecution, and considered it greater riches to be his people and to suffer the hatred and contempt of all than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin for a season. Knowing that they were suffering for his sake, they felt their confidence fixed on him alone, and in his strength were raised above all their trials. About this time, says James Parnell, I was about fifteen years of age, and afterwards I was called forth to visit some friends in the north part of England, with whom I had union in spirit before I saw their faces. It was probably during this visit to the north that he went to see George Fox, who, in 1653, was in prison at Carlisle in whose journal we find it stated, While I was in the dungeon in Carlisle, James Parnell, a little lad, of about sixteen years of age, came to see me and was convinced. From this remark of George Fox, it appears that James Parnell had not, till this time, had any interaction with friends, although the people with whom he had before associated in religious worship had been brought near to some of their principles. From what has gone before, it is evident that James Parnell had already experienced real conversion of heart, had been brought to see the formality of the priests, and had separated himself from the customary form of worship to wait on the Lord alone, so that, by this interview with George Fox, he was merely convinced that the truth which George Fox preached was the same as that into which he himself had been led by the Spirit of Truth. George Fox was at this time about 31 years of age, and had been engaged in preaching the truth about seven years. It must have been an unspeakable comfort to him, when imprisoned for truth's sake, to have received this visit from a little lad, to hear from him what the Lord had done for his soul, and to trace in his experience fresh evidence of the substantial reality of those great principles which had been opened to his own mind. And not less comforting must it have been to James Parnell to meet with this father in Israel and to receive a confirmation of his own faith and a deeper conviction of the truth by conversation with such an elder. It is remarkable, however, that he nowhere mentions the name of George Fox at this time. It is uncertain how long James Parnell stayed with him, but we find him mentioned as being in his company at Drayton, where he had a dispute with Nathaniel Stevens and several other priests in 1654. James Parnell returned home from the north, and for a time pursued his outward calling, and was favored to experience the Lord's work progressing in him, and his truth more and more fully manifested to his soul. Keeping faithful to the measure of light imparted to him, through the strength of divine grace, he was soon called to proclaim the truth to others. George Fox says, The Lord quickly made him a powerful minister of the word of life, and many were turned to Christ by him, though he lived not long. At first, he was not sent far from his home in the service of truth, and while occasionally engaged in the Lord's work, 
was still concerned to fill up the intermediate time with diligent attention to his outward calling. When between 17 and 18 years of age, probably about the middle of 1654, he was sent to a people about 15 miles distant, to whom the Lord was making known his truth. He did not know when he left his home that he should have to go further than that place, but when there, he was moved to go to Cambridge, and from this time, he was apparently exclusively occupied in the Lord's service, either by preaching, by writing epistles to confirm those who were convinced, or books against the opponents of truth, or by lying in prison for his testimony and faithfulness to the cause of Christ. He went to Cambridge without knowing what was to be done for him there, or what he might have to do, and without being acquainted with any in that place who would receive him into their houses. He had heard that the mayor of Cambridge had caused two friends to be whipped for declaring the truth as they passed through the town. Footnote, two women, Mary Fisher and Elizabeth Williams. Returning to text. And not knowing but that a similar portion awaited him, in obedience to apprehended duty, and without conferring with flesh and blood, or being intimidated by the rumor of persecution which others had experienced, he faithfully proceeded on his journey and was comforted by the Lord's presence and direction. Having arrived at Cambridge, he was gladly received by some, and learned that there was a friend in prison for declaring the same testimony with which he was himself commissioned. This did not deter him, however, from publishing, within a fortnight after his arrival, two papers, the one against the corruption of the magistrates, and the other against the corruption of the priests, for which he was committed by William Pickering, the mayor, to prison. The date of this committal appears from the following remark in a letter from Richard Hubberthorne to Francis Howgill, dated 4th of 7th month, 1654. He writes, James Parnell and I are in the dungeon as yet, where we were put the 28th of this last month, but we feel the mighty power of God and are in joy and peace in the Lord. To him be praise eternal forevermore. James Parnell might have escaped this imprisonment if he had been willing to give bond for his good behavior, in allusion to which he remarked, I am redeemed out of the generation which is guilty of misdemeanors, and was bound to good behavior by a stronger bond than man can make. He was detained in prison at Cambridge for the space of two court sessions, his enemies not being able to charge him with the breach of any law. At the second session, a jury was summoned, and an attempt made to prove the papers which he had published were scandalous and seditious. The jurymen appear to have possessed a more independent spirit than was common in those days, when a few individuals often had power to twist laws as they desired, to act against everything associated with our sense of what is due to our fellow men and to the established laws of the community. They brought in their verdict that they found nothing but that the papers were his. His enemies were thus crossed in their intentions of obtaining a legal form under the cloak of which they might continue to persecute him. And although they had so long unjustly detained him in confinement, they did not immediately liberate him but recommitted him to prison for three days, and then sent him out of the town under an escort of men bearing arms and staves, and with a pass that identified him as a rogue. But on the following day a justice of the peace, coming from Cambridge, and knowing that he was innocent, witnessed the pass to be false and took it back. Thus James Parnell was set at liberty. But, Notwithstanding the rough usage he had experienced during his first visit, he soon believed it required of him to return to Cambridge again, where, in parts adjoining, he openly and freely proclaimed the truth about the space of a half a year. Many gladly received his message, but he says, There were more adversaries, yet truth spread and prevailed over its enemies. James Parnell, being young in years and of a little stature, and lowly in his outward presence and appearance, was denominated the quaking boy by the envious professors against whose formality and carnal security he was engaged to testify. Samuel Cater had been an elder among the Baptists, 
but having been convinced of the truth through James Parnell's ministry, he became affectionately attached to him and kept with him as much as he possibly could. Thus, he had an opportunity of becoming intimately acquainted with him, not only as related to his public ministry and doctrine, but also as to his private character. He informs us that, notwithstanding his youth and unimpressive appearance, he was remarkably endowed with divine wisdom, and, in the name and power of the living God, was enabled to stop the mouths of those who came forth in the strength of the power of darkness to oppose the truth of God, to catch them in their own snares, and to confound them in the sight of all who had eyes to see. He had a good gift to declare the truth, was full of zeal and heavenly courage in bearing an unflattering testimony to all, and was eminently qualified for every service to which he was called, being enabled to divide the word aright, both by giving instruction to honest-seeking minds and by marking out and manifesting deceivers. He called people to repentance and to turn to the light of the Spirit of Truth which visited their hearts, that through the power of Jesus Christ they might come to experience their souls renewed, their lives sanctified, and their hearts brought into peace with God. He exhorted them to come away from the teachings of carnal men and from their confidence in the arm and wisdom of flesh, to lean on the strength and depend on the teachings of Jesus Christ alone, to learn in His light their own conditions and the way to an effectual apprehension of Him as their Savior. And when any had turned to the truth, he was earnest in his exhortations to them, that they might be careful to walk in the truth to which they had turned, to watch unto it, to walk in God's fear, and to deny themselves, to bear the cross daily, and to be faithful to that little measure of light and truth which had been already received, that thus they might come to know more. But young James Parnell not only proclaimed good doctrines, but was also a good example and pattern in life and conduct by which he preached the truth, as well as by words. He was grave, humble, blameless in his conversation, and unspotted from the world, patient and meek under the sufferings he endured for the sake of Christ, diligent and willing in the Lord's service, even at the jeopardy of his life. Thus his presence was a strength and comfort to the upright, but in awe and dread to those who did not walk answerably to the profession which they made. He was, Thomas Bales has remarked, an innocent man, and lived in the testimonies and the fear of God. He sought nothing here for himself, but alone labored and travailed that the people might be brought unto the knowledge and love of God. The reader will be interested in the following treatise, selected from James Parnell's works, it appears to have been the first of his publications. It was written in 1654 when he was 17 years of age. It is entitled, A Trial of Faith, wherein is discovered the ground of the faith of the hypocrites which perishes, and of the faith of the saints which is founded upon the everlasting rock, so that all may see what their faith is and what they trust to. Come. Try your faith, all you professors of godliness, of God and of Christ, who say God is your Father and Christ your Redeemer, and that you believe in God and are saved through faith in Christ. Come, search the ground and bottom of your faith, upon what it is built, for the faith and hope of the hypocrite will perish, Job 8.13, which stand in words and on a weak foundation. You say you are saved by the blood of Christ, and by his stripes you are healed, and so would make him the ground of your faith. But from what have you been saved, and of what are you healed? Search within and see. Christ came to save and redeem sinners from their sins, and to heal them of its wounds, to bruise the serpent's head, to bind the strong man and cast him out of his house, and to open the prison doors, to set at liberty the imprisoned, and to lead captivity captive, to cast Antichrist out of the temple who sits there as God and says he is God, 
and Christ came to rend that veil of darkness, to open the eyes of the blind, and to unstop the deaf ears, and to make blind those who can see, and to make deaf those who can hear, to give strength to the weak, and to make weak those that are strong, to feed the hungry, and to famish that which is fed, to make a separation between the precious and the vile, between the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats, and to purchase for man that which man has lost. For this end is he come. And they who can witness this work can witness him, and may claim an inheritance in him, and have an assurance of their salvation. Their faith will stand against the beast and overcome. For the lamb shall get the victory. But they who cannot witness this cannot witness Christ, and so are reprobates concerning the faith. Now here, all you drunkards are shut out. Here, all you swearers are shut out. Here, all you proud and covetous and lustful ones are shut out. Here, all you scoffers and scorners and backbiters, revilers, extortioners and envious ones, gamers and sporters are shut out. And all you self-righteous professors of Christianity who live in the fashions and customs of the world, delighting in the pleasures and vanities of the world and having fellowship with it, whose citizenship is among the children of the world, you are shut out. You who cleanse only the outside of the cup while the inside is full of lust and filthiness, pride, covetousness, and all uncleanness, whitewashed walls and painted sepulchres are you. You deceive the carnal eye and ear, but the Lord searches the heart. You are shut out of the true faith, which purifies the heart. Acts 15.9 The serpent is still head in you, and your strong man keeps the house, and a stronger than he is not yet come. But Antichrist sits in the kingdom and reigns as an angel of light. Indeed, the wound of sin is yet fresh. The veil of darkness is spread over you, and death still reigns. Alas, Christ lies low in the manger, and the inn of your heart is taken up with other guests. And here you can make no claim to the blood of Christ. You have nothing to do but to talk of God and Christ, and have no right assurance of your salvation. Your faith is vain, and your hope vain, and the foundation thereof is sandy. And it will not stand in the day of trial, but will be as a broken reed to lean upon. Hear all your prayers and praises, singing, grace, baptism, and sacraments, upon which you build your faith and think to merit, are all in vain, being offered up from an unclean heart. For how can your hearts be clean while you live in sin? For sin lodges in your hearts, and while sin is there, purity cannot dwell there. Nothing that is pure can come forth from an unclean vessel. God does not put forth his treasure in an unclean vessel. He is pure and receives nothing that is impure. Here all your faith is shown to be vain, for you destroy your faith with the words from your own mouths, who say you believe you shall never overcome sin so long as you are in this world, and that you shall never be made free from sin. And here you show that your faith is not built upon Christ, who came to destroy the works of the devil and to cleanse from all sin. But those whose faith was built upon him did witness this and said, The blood of Christ has cleansed us from all sin. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with his affections and lusts, which are the ground of sin. And he that believes is born of God, and he that is born of God cannot sin etc. So now, what right assurance have you of your salvation? Or upon what is your faith built, when both Christ and the Scriptures testify against you? Faith, which is not built on the rock, Christ Jesus, is vain and perishes, and he who has the true hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Here your faith is searched, tried, and proved, and is found all vain and perishing, and so is not built upon the rock which perishes not. Therefore, come down, all you high-minded Pharisees, lay aside all your professions, throw down all your old buildings, and begin and lay a new foundation. 
for the higher the Pharisee climbs, the greater will be his fall. He that will be wise must first become a fool, for man by his own wisdom knows not God. Therefore the Pharisee who stands in his own wisdom is shut out from the saving knowledge of God. And all you willfully blind, carnal, ignorant creatures whom my soul pities, when I see how ignorantly you are led, who pin your faith on the sleeves of your forefathers and live in lightness and carelessness, spending your youth in vanity and gaming, pleasure and sporting, in drunkenness, swearing and lying, in vain talk and foolish jesting, in pride, lust and filthiness, and say you follow your forefathers and that your pleasures are just pastime and recreation and your vain talk and foolish jesting is only pastime and merriment. So you pass your time away and say your drinking and rioting and feasting are good fellowship and neighborhood. So you cover your sins and iniquities. But woe unto him that hides his sin and covers his iniquity. All this will profit you nothing. Nor can your forefathers excuse you before the Lord. For in the beginning, Eve could not justify Adam, nor excuse him. But he was condemned because he hearkened to her voice and disobeyed the Lord. And thus Adam suffered for his own sin, and so did Eve for hers. And so it will be no excuse for you in the day of account to say you followed your forefathers and did as they did before you. For then will the Lord say, because you followed the traditions and fashions and customs and inventions of men, and have hearkened to the voice of the serpent, and have disobeyed my voice and command, and slighted my counsel, and desired none of my reproof, but cast my law behind your backs, and trampled my mercy underfoot, and have turned my grace into wantonness, and have spent my creation upon your lusts, and have stoned, stalked, buffeted, imprisoned, and shamefully entreated my messengers, which I sent unto you to forewarn you of your iniquity, and have crucified my Son in your hearts. Therefore, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I know you not. Into everlasting torment prepared for the devil and his angels. See now how vain your hope is, and how weak is your faith, when you have more assurance of your damnation than your salvation. For the Lord says, no unrighteous person can enter his kingdom, nor any unholy, unclean thing. Therefore, all you who desire the salvation of your souls, try and prove your faith and hope in which you trust, and take heed of trusting in a broken reed, lest it deceive you. Experience has taught you that if the foundation of a building is decayed and wasted and not, the building will fall when a storm comes. Let him, therefore, that thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. And all of you, whose desire is after righteousness, hearken unto that witness in your consciences, who raises up desires after righteousness, and who shows you the vanity of your lives, checks you when you do amiss, and troubles and torments you in conscience when you have done any evil act. Be willing to be guided by this, and it will lead you to repentance and newness of life, and to forsake those things which it discovers to be contrary to the will of God. And if you are willing to follow this witness, and to be guided by it, you will find a teacher continually present, checking you in your conscience for vain thoughts and for vain and idle and needless words and actions. And it will also crucify the lust, which is the ground of these things. It will lead you out of the paths of death into the way of life, out of the traditions, customs, fashions, and opinions of the world into the assurance of the eternal truth. And you who are willing to follow this light and to be guided by it, shall need no man to teach you, but it will be a teacher unto you, teaching and directing you in righteousness, purity, and holiness. And if you are diligent, keeping your mind within, with an ear open to the pure voice, you shall find it present with you wheresoever you are, in the fields, in your bed, in markets, in company, or wheresoever you are, when your outward priest or teacher is absent or far off, 
it will be present with you and will check you and condemn you for that which no outward eye can see and will cleanse your heart from lust and deceit and uncleanness and will purify your heart and make it a fit temple for the pure one to dwell in. And then your sacrifices will be pure, which come from a pure heart, and the Lord will accept them. But if you would attain to this, you must be willing to deny your lusts, your vanity, your delights, and whatever has been your life. For Christ has declared, Whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. So, there is no obtaining life but through death, no obtaining the crown but through the cross. Therefore, you must deny yourself and take up your daily cross and follow Christ. If you would be his disciple, you must give up yourself wholly to be guided by the will of God, so that all which is contrary to the will of God may be crucified and forsaken, though it be ever so near or dear to you, whether lands or living, wife or children, friends and acquaintances, or all the world, and all the delights in the world. For the Lord has said, He that loves anything more than me is not worthy of me. So, May the Lord God Almighty prosper all the tender desires which are raised up towards him and feed the hungry and thirsty souls as he has promised and raise up his own into dominion in all his children that he alone may be glorified, praised, and honored who is worthy and to whom all belongs. And this is the desire of his soul who is a servant of the Lord who is hated, reviled, and derided by the world because he has no fellowship with it nor with its vanities, but rather testifies against its ways, fashions, traditions, customs, fellowship, words, and worship, and sees them all to be formal imitations and the inventions of men out of the covenant of God, and therefore cannot but deny them, and for this cause he is hated by all, both priest and people, whose name, according to the world, is James Parnell. The following extracts from his works will enable us to form some idea of his ministry and of the seriousness of his dealing with carnal professors of Christianity, about whom he thus expressed himself. But praised be the Almighty, who has so weakened their hands and shattered their foundation, and caused his light to shine out of darkness, that they are so manifest that all you people who love light better than darkness may now see how ignorantly and blindly you have been led, as strangers from the Father of Light, after the vain traditions, customs, forms, ordinances, and imaginations of men, with a vain profession and feigned faith. You have laid hold of notions, but still live in your sins and iniquities, still alive in the first nature, under death's dominion still strangers from the God of life and from Christ, the Savior and Redeemer of his people from their sins. Thus you lie under the power of darkness and delusion of Antichrist, both priests and people. For like people, like priest, and so says the prophet, that your leaders cause you to err by their lies and their lightness. And though you are full of teachers, yet you are lost for lack of true knowledge and are still led captive in your sins and iniquities, following those who have the form, but deny the life and power, who are ever learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. You differ from the heathen in name or profession, judgment or opinion, but are still alive in the same nature, in the fall, under the curse, and are children of disobedience, in whom the prince of darkness rules, and you must have a law outside of you to keep you in awe and fear, as they have whom you account heathen. But the righteous need no outward law, because the law was added because of transgression. And you are fighting and killing and devouring one another, as they do, whom you call heathen. And you are drunkards and swearers and liars, as they are. You are scorners and scoffers and revilers and backbiters, and proud and covetous idolaters and high-minded oppressors, as they are, both priest and people. You are idolaters, as they are, eating and drinking and rising up to play, 
and you are envious and malicious, suing and rending and tearing one another at law, both priest and people, pulling down others to set up yourselves. You are cheating and defrauding one another of the earth, which is not your own. And you are persecutors and strikers and stoners of the innocent children and servants and messengers of God. Indeed, what sin is there among those whom you account heathen that is not among you and does not abound? Yes, those whom you call heathen may condemn you in much of your practice. Oh, be ashamed and blush, you priests and teachers of England, to see your ministry and the fruit of your ministry so laid open before you. And thus you are manifested to be those who come near the Lord with their lips and mouths, but their hearts are in the earth, far from him. Otherwise you would walk more uprightly. But, says the Lord, in vain do you worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. And these things both Christ and his apostles judged and condemned as being out of the new covenant. For here no unrighteous person can dwell, and here all wars are ended, and the sword is beaten to plowshares, and the spears into pruning hooks. Here, in the new covenant, there is no oppression nor self-exaltation, but he that would be greatest must be least. Yes, in righteousness are they established, and they are far from oppression, and the Lord alone is their teacher. And here there is no need of an outward law, for to them there is no condemnation who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And here there is no respect of persons, but all are members of one body, of which Christ is the head, and they serve one another in love. Here is the new covenant and the children of the new covenant who are washed and made clean by the blood of the new covenant. But you are aliens and strangers from this covenant who are living in mere notions and outward professions. In the same work, Parnell thus describes the true church. And concerning the church, it is now being gathered and redeemed, not by the will of man, nor by the wisdom of man, but by the will and power and spirit of God, which, according to his promise, he has poured upon his sons and daughters now in these latter days. And by this spirit we are carried abroad in the power of the Almighty to declare his powerful truth, which the Lord has decreed shall prevail upon the hearts of the people, which is glad tidings of great joy unto them that receive it, but unto the stubborn and stiff-necked and rebellious it is tidings of woe and misery. And though the messengers of the gospel are by some rejected, reviled, reproached, scoffed and scorned, stocked, stoned and imprisoned, despitefully used, slandered and abused, yet, nevertheless, blessed be the name of the Lord, there are some found worthy who receive with much joy the messengers of the gospel. These know how beautiful are the feet of those that bring glad tidings to the reviving of the just witness for God within and the raising up of the dead spirit to life so that the living come to know and praise the Lord. In this way, the righteous one comes to reign and the wicked one comes to be judged and the mind comes to be turned from darkness to light. It is to this witness of God in every creature that we preach, and by it we are made manifest, both from where we come and the testimony we declare. But to those who do not receive it, we are not known, and are therefore by them esteemed deceivers and deluders, vagabonds, wanderers, and the like. Yet all this we do not wonder at, for we read, The servant is not greater than his Lord. For if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more those of his household. And if they had known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Even so there is a witness in every conscience, both in them that believe and in them that perish, unto which we do clear our conscience and leave all without excuse. Indeed, this witness will answer for us in the mighty day of judgment, though it will be the condemnation of all those who have hated it. But... As many as receive this divine light, to them he gives power to become the sons of God. Those who are led and guided by the one spirit of truth, which the world cannot receive, even the comforter, of whom you have heard that he should come, are by him separated out of the world 
and redeemed out of the rudiments and pollutions thereof, its fashions, its customs, its words, its ways, its manners, its breeding, its fellowship, love and friendship, its honor, its glory and its worship. So they become strangers to the world, and so they are hated of the world, because they are not of the world. Truly the enmity stands between the two seeds. For while these were of the world, the world loved them. But now that they are gathered out of the world and separated from the world and testify against it, both in their words and actions, therefore the enmity rises up in the world against the righteous seed in them. These are they upon whom the end of the world has come and to whom it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to the world they are given in parables. And these are they who have come with a mighty arm and power to turn the world upside down, whom the Lord has gathered and is gathering out of the world by his own spirit of truth and love to walk in the way of truth, even the highway of holiness, where the ransomed of the Lord walk and serve and worship him in spirit and in truth. Such as these the Father is seeking to worship him, in whom he is doing his own work, even to destroy the old creation and to create new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And these are the new creatures in whom the new work is witnessed, in whom the Father has manifested his Son, that he might condemn sin, bind the strong man, cast him out of his house, spoil his goods, and so destroy the works of the devil, and cut down that man of sin, even the son of perdition who is exalted above all that is called God, sitting in the temple of God and saying he is God. This is he by whom the world is deceived, who is the God of this world, even the prince of darkness who rules in all the children of disobedience. John, speaking in the light, says, The whole world lies in wickedness. And so Christ comes with a sword to make war with the wicked one and to cast him into outer darkness and so take his kingdom from him and rule himself in righteousness. He is king of saints who has come to redeem unto himself a pure people and to wash and cleanse them from their sins by his blood and so wash away all filthiness both of flesh and spirit. And this is the true baptism by which they are received into his church and faith, and here is the effect of his blood wrought in man. Indeed, he does and will continue to manifest his mighty power to purify, cleanse, and make man a fit temple for himself to dwell in. Thus Emmanuel, God with us, is manifest, and the saints' bodies are made the temples of the Holy Spirit, and thus the word of life and reconciliation is witnessed, raising up the soul into life and reconciling it to God. These are they that are begotten and born again of the immortal word, which lives and abides forever. And here is the household of God, the household of faith, and the household of love, who speak the things which they have heard, seen, and tasted of the good word of life, who was in the beginning." These are the children of light who are gathered out of the dark forms, judgments, and opinions into the life and power of godliness to walk in the light of life, wherein they are gathered and united by the one spirit of love and life into one body, of which Christ is the head. Here is the true church, which the Lord is gathering and washing and cleansing and purifying by his spirit that he may redeem unto himself a pure bride, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, whose insides are washed and made clean through the word, by which they are reconciled into the love and union which spring from the life of God. And here is the vine and the branches, and the communion of the church, all feeding upon one bread and drinking of one cup. Yes, this is Christ the life of the saints, and as many as are baptized into this church partake of this communion. These are they who have denied themselves and have borne the cross of Christ, by which they are crucified unto the world and the world unto them, who are gathered into one covenant of life, where all are fellow servants under one master, 
who serve one another in love and meekness. Here is the true humility wrought in the heart, the true washing of the feet without hypocrisy. And thus is the church of Christ gathered by one spirit, and by the same it is circumcised and baptized into one life, light, and power, where all dwell as members of one body, of which Christ is the head. Here is the blessed union and communion in one, and here God is worshipped in spirit and in truth. And as Christ is spiritual, so is his church, which is his body, and so are his ordinances. Here are the true Christians, not those who have the notion of these things, but they that witness and possess them in the life. They that believe have the witness in themselves. They that believe have passed from death unto life, and the life they now live is by the faith of the Son of God. These are new creatures who are in Christ Jesus, to whom there is no condemnation, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Against such as these there is no law, for they are translated out of that nature for which the law was added, and are set free by the law of the Spirit of life, and are made partakers of the divine nature of Christ, by which they are made Christians. And such now witness the effect of the blood of Christ wrought within them, and the end of his coming, and the benefit of his death, who are dead with him, and risen through the death of the cross. Yes, these are they who have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Son of God within them, Christ within, the hope of glory. Or else there is no hope of glory. For they who cannot witness him so are still in the reprobation, as the Apostle says in Second Corinthians 13.5. And here is the Son in the saints and the Father in the Son. And thus all are made perfect in one. And here is the true church, where there is one teacher, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one light, one life, and one way, one shepherd and one sheepfold, and one priest over the household of God. Here is one hope and one language, one family, one God and Father of all. This was written in 1655, when James Parnell was between 17 and 18 years of age. This is the end of part one.